Zabisco is coming, hooray, hooroo, he's coming to wrestle the titled crew. There's Caddick the Mangler and Lewis the Strangler, there's Plastina and Pest Sick too. Second squeak! Zabisco is coming, hooroo, hooray, the title claimants are eager, they say. But the bouts, will you swear that they'll be on the square, or do you just hope that they may? Crazy territory stories, double crosses and swords. Paul as a lame history nerds. Welcome back, everyone. You're here with us. Well, you're not here with us. You're at home. You're at work. You're you're out in the hills, in the desert, in the woods, maybe. Hopefully, you're safe and not lost. Where am I going with this? What am I talking about? Who am I? My name is Nick Gossert. I am a pro wrestling promoter, a booker, a writer. But more importantly for today, I am a pro wrestling history nerd, and I am here with a man I read to like a child with a storybook each and every time. It's Chongo Bronson. How the hell are you, man? Read me another one, Daddy. I'm capital, and I'm excited about this journey, the Hippodrome Express. Hello, nerds. And we got a we got a good one today, man. Oh yeah, no, I'm as excited as you are. I am. This story just keeps getting crazier because we are moving along with our story of the the wrestling world after Gotch and Hackenschmidt. And we're kind of getting to a point where if you're jumping on now, if this is your first download of this show, well, we're, we're glad to have you here. I am excited that you're invested enough to, uh, to check us out. But you might want to take a step back. You might want to go back to you know, Ed Lewis Part 1, or if you want to get the full breadth of things, go all the way back to Stanislaw Zabisco and start listening there because we are telling our first real big picture story arc. And I think things are entertaining just in the context of the single episode, but to really appreciate everything that you're going to be hearing, check out the last few just to see what this is built upon to get where we are, because we've been building this story of men like Ed Strangler Lewis, Joe Stetcher, John Pesek. And now all these stories are finally starting to intertwine into one crazy narrative that just gets wilder as the time goes by. And some of you may be history nerds as well. You may be saying, hey, I read this story over here, or according to this author over here, and you know what? They may be right, we may be wrong, maybe vice versa, maybe somewhere in the middle, because a lot of this is based on interpretation. Sometimes we are going off of the press and the press has it wrong. Sometimes we're listening to these stories from the students of the men we're discussing or their children or grandchildren. So there is just, like with all parts of history, modern man trying to make sense of the past as best as we possibly can. Yeah, man, I mean, don't split hairs on greatness. We're, we're retelling the history here. Feel free to contribute if you can, if you got some email to shoot or some nerd conversation to have with a computer. The, but other than that, enjoy the ride because this is basically like the carny version of the Avengers, man. And that's kind of where, that's a good analogy we keep using. And you'll see how all these stories come together, at, just like you heard in that wackadoodle uh, opening sing-song poem that we uh, started the show with. That came from the Quincy Daily Herald, February 3rd, 1920. And it did sum up what wrestling was at that time. Those were the big names. Stanislaw Zabisco, Vladik Zabisco, Earl Caddick, Ed Lewis, Placina, John Pesek were becoming the stars of the day. 
or for 90s kids like myself. These were The Rock, the Steve Austins, the, you know, the big stars. These guys were making the papers every single day. Wrestling was back in a big way, and these are the men that were anchoring the sport. Yeah, if you're getting a show tune written about you back in the day, that's like the, you know, the, what, like coal miner era equivalent of going viral, right? Like Exactly. And where we left off last time, we left off with that big rematch in Omaha between Joe Stetcher and Ed Strangler-Lewis, where these men, under the, the watchful eye of Curly and Billy Sandow, realized that the best way to do business is to do business, where the side betting was no longer the primary reason to do things. You weren't trying to screw the marks. You were trying to entice them to continue spending ticket money time and time again. Promoters were starting to see things as a big picture, not a screw them and leave town carny type of, of thing, even though that was the precedent, that was the culture, and in some cases it still is today. Yeah, so, so it brings up an interesting sort of like, you know, point in the evolution of pro wrestling. Like, would that make Sandow kind of like patient zero of sports entertainment and booking it for a work primarily it really would because up until that point it was the stars themselves and the managers of the stars that controlled the business in order to get a frank gotch match you had to do business with frank gotch and well clank his manager so in order to get things done you had to go through them specifically it's kind of like how Boxing today, in order to get a exactly. Floyd Mayweather fight, you have to go through Floyd Mayweather Inc. or whatever his, his company is. It's all star-driven, therefore it's ego-driven, therefore nobody wants to stake anything, nobody wants to lose anything, and the money has to be so high that it becomes almost impossible to do business. Back in these days, they realized that for wrestling to grow, everybody had to put their egos aside. They had to put their bullshit aside and do what was best for business itself so everyone could prosper equally. Take note, you mark promoters. There's more money if we work together. Let's, let's work the marks together. It always makes me think about that scene from a Sopranos episode where Tony and Uncle Junior are talking, and he brings up an old joke. He says, the father and son bowl are looking down at a field full of cows, and the son says, Dad, why don't we run down there and fuck one of those cows? And the father replies, Son, why don't we walk down there and fuck them all? That is the only, the only appropriate uh, analogy for this, for this great masterpiece of explaining how he got all these cronies to go along with this because the hardest thing to do is get a den of thieves to work together for a single heist so in the afterglow of ed lewis's big match in omaha against joe stetcher ed lewis spent a few months in california with his wife he got back to business fairly soon. On August 19th, he lost a handicap match where he was challenged to throw both Dante Petroff and Jim Londos in two hours. He pinned Petroff but couldn't beat Londos before time ran out. Once again, he was more than willing to help build a new star in Jim Londos, but these types of moves were now a long-term plan for the sake of business, not an immediate rematch. Because Jim Londos, he was an up-and-coming star, and it wasn't like back in the day where... Or somebody like Gotch or Muldoon or big stars like that would do the gotta throw multiple men or a, one man multiple times in a certain amount of time to simply build up a big match 
with just those two men. This was for the sake of building up a young star. It wasn't an immediate, you know, churn and burn type of thing where I'm going to build you up temporarily just so I can kill you later. This is so we can create new stars, new blood to keep once again. It's for the sake of the business, for the company, not just one man's ego and single payday. Yeah, and they're, they're using the old tricks for new new directions of gain. They're thinking long term. They're playing chess for the first time, building up young stars so it's not an immediate, you know, uh, turn and burn, like you said. They're gonna they're gonna turn these guys into long term. You know, this is a beautiful. You're seeing it develop at the grassroots and organically. The first time the amalgamation and the shift is happening, and it's becoming sports entertainment and worked pro wrestling as we know it today and it's very cool because they're still using the old time tricks of like kind of how they would set up they would set up contenders with stipulations and that's kind of a lost thing we don't do that so much anymore another aspect of the business that changed was gambling in October 1919 the infamous Black Sox scandal rocked both sports and society as a whole for those unfamiliar with it the Chicago White Sox were accused of throwing the World Series against the Cincinnati Reds in exchange for a healthy cut from the gambling afterwards. A gambling syndicate offered them a cut. They took the deal. The fallout was a public moral panic against sports gambling. Most states had anti-gambling laws on the books already due to sports being so easy to fix at the time, but they were seldom, if ever, enforced. But with the new legal attacks on sports betting, the people involved in the very, very worked sport of pro wrestling knew they would be the first to fall under scrutiny. Thus, they began focusing on box office games through entertainment and spectacle instead of side bet scams. So this was a sea change. This was a big moment of shifting how the dollars changed hands in many aspects of sports, wrestling specifically. So, which was the chicken and which was the egg? Was it the, you know, the Black Sox scandal? Or was it that they were already going to more of a worked model and getting away from the gambling and that just pushed it further? Or did that sort of trigger the change? I think it's a big overlap because it seemed like Curly and Sandow had a vision. They had an idea of how to make everything more organized, more centralized. You know, we talked about how Curly wanted to create a unified rule set for wrestling. It didn't yeah. go terribly well, but the idea and the concept was there. So I feel that it was going in that direction no matter what, just because everything was getting bigger, but at the same time smaller. You couldn't just burn the same towns with a carnival circuit like you used to. And then the sports bet issue was just the nail, the final nail in the coffin, if you will. It was the reason that we had to completely shift things in this direction just to keep business going, keep it profitable, and more importantly, keep the police off their fucking back at every turn. And it's another example of Sandow being one step ahead of the curve. So in the fall of 1919, Jack Curley promoted a series of no time limit matches to determine an undisputed number one contender, with the winner facing Earl Caddick for the title. The first took place in Madison Square Garden on November 3rd, featuring a rematch between Joe Stetcher and Ed Lewis, and like all of their matches, it was a physical game of strength versus technique. 
Size versus speed, with Lewis powering his way out of holds, throwing Stetcher around, and Stetcher moving from hold to hold to hold until he finally caught Lewis with a pin at the hour and a half mark. Wow. I, I can see why they've utilized the no time limit stipulation because it almost indicates that there will be a winner. And I was expecting some Sandow magic there to come up with a creative finish, but the pin at 90 minutes definitely establishes the legitimacy of the stip. Yeah, because you know, as we talked about last episode, when Curly tried to make decisions and time limit draws like boxing part of wrestling, it hurt the box office, it hurt draws, so you had to keep people invested. You had to bring back decisive finishes. So for a few years, it was always advertised as there will be a finish. No draws, no bullshit, because they were burning out the audience with that type of behavior. So by making sure that everything looked above the boards, people were getting their money's worth. Nobody was walking away pissed off because there was a non-finish. Because as we've seen in even in televised wrestling, if you have too much schmoz bullshit you have too many things where main events are busted up by run-ins and goofball bullshit unless you do it very seldom and very artfully all it does is make the ticket buyers mad and this is back in the days where you didn't have television sponsors that would kick in no matter what you had to sell tickets if you didn't sell tickets you didn't you know you didn't eat you couldn't run the next show you couldn't uh, you know power the train or the horse or the mule or the hot air balloon or however the fuck you got to the next town things had to be profitable and successful on their own terms around the same time joe carroll marsh aka Oli marsh whom you might remember from the frank gotch alaska story was making a lot of noise in the press about the state of wrestling he had been a rival of Jack Curley's promotion in the Northwest until 1909 when he was charged and pled guilty to being part of the Maybrayer Gang, a nationwide organization that fixed boxing, wrestling, horse racing, and anything else that they could make a profit off of when it came time to place bets. He did a year in Levensworth and blamed Jack Curley for all his problems, and in 1919, he was out, he was managing Marin Plastina, the last of the great Martin Burns-trained heavyweights to mean anything in the business. And I like to think that every time that Joe Carroll Marsh would look at the paper and see Jack Curley, he would shake his fist at the heavens and yell, Curley! Gadzooks, what a storyline, man. You can't make this shit up. That is tremendous. He got hauled out. He was in the, the Mayberry gang over fixing fights. And then, I'll get you, Carly. That is tremendous, tremendous stuff. It's kind of like Dr. Doom and Reed Richards, but they're both kind of Dr. Doom. One's just a better Dr. Doom. And they're just shady promoters. Oh, absolutely. But Joe Carroll Marsh, he was taking to the press, accusing Stetcher, Sandow, and... Lewis of controlling the sport with their trust, of being dishonest in faking matches, and gave away future finishes that he heard through the grapevine. He hyped Plastina as a real wrestler who never faked his matches, and that's why the trust stars would never face him. Ooh, you see the you see the initial like this is like the start of a territory war, a proto, you know, just battle of that gets ugly in only the way pro wrestling territory disputes can. Marsh practically had an open forum to air grievances in Collier's Eye, a newspaper owned by his friend Bert Collier. He claimed that Curley's tournament was fixed and would end up with Stetcher winning the tournament and then the title from Caddick. 
None of this affected the box office or created the outrage that Marsh was hoping for. The second match of the series went right ahead as scheduled and took place in Boston between Vladik Zabisco and Ed Strangler-Lewis. Vladik Zabisco was starting to fade from his status as a top guy with a big loss to John Pesek on June 19th in Gordon, Nebraska, with Pesek securing a wrist lock a little after the two-hour mark. But losses to young stars or not, it was Vladik's night to shine on November 27, 1919 at Boston's Mechanics Building. With 6,500 fans on hand to watch the match, he pinned Lewis in 38 minutes, thus eliminating Lewis from competition after two straight losses. Wow, that's a, that's a tremendous finish. And it, it really illustrates that they're going hard against the grain of like, the, the sock scandal is hot. People are worried about the fixes. They're getting, you know, slanderous accusations left, right, and center, trying to uh, claim that they're not legitimate. So it's, it shows a decisive finish, and I think that's a strong way to play their hand. And you'll hear a lot about how Lewis lost this, Lewis lost that. It does show that, legendary shooter or not, this is a man who could see the big picture along with Sandow and Curly and understood that everybody's time comes, everybody's time goes, everything is cyclical, nobody stays on top forever. Sometimes the old-timers have trouble letting go. That's a story for down the road for him. But for the time being, he understood it was get along to get along. And so he's, he's playing the long game. He's building the next level of drawing stars. He's using his star power to build up new, you know, a pantheon of new champions. On December 8th, 1919, Joe Stetcher beat Vladik Zabisco with his famous head scissors and wrist lock in just under two and a half hours at Madison Square Garden, and then finished out the year with a win over John Ullin on the 15th. On January 16th, Joe Stetcher won a match against John Pesek at the Omaha Municipal Auditorium, and we discussed this match in detail in our second episode about John Pesek. Pesek was on the rise, was essentially undefeated, and was ready for the big time. He was built big enough to be on the doorstep of the title picture, but 6,000 fans showed up to watch that door get slammed in his goddamn face as Joe Stetcher won the contest. Pesek was unhappy with the business side of the match, which Drew reported 30k at the box office, Whew. but he only saw 3,500, and a third of that went to his agent Martin Slattery. Well, you know that's show business, darling, and you know he, he's along for the ride right now. He's he's getting booked in the top spot, and just when they the people think that they've got their man pegged, that's when you smell the sand out and they work the marks and. That's how you keep the box offices growing, because well, I don't even know what that would be in today's money. It would be a lot. Yeah, it'd be a lot. Mathematically too. speaking, I did the calculations. It would be more than I've got right now. Ah, that's a, that's a fair point. I wonder if it's like gold coins and stuff too. Yeah, I, I, I tried putting it through the calculation to both uh, rupees and doubloons. It's just it's incalculable. But things got very interesting, and I mean very interesting for the time in mid-January of 1920, as announcements of Stanislaw Zabisco soon returning from Europe. Stanislaw Zabisco, Vladik's older brother, was one of the biggest wrestling stars in the world ten years before. This is a man who 
conquered the Greco-Roman tournaments of Europe. This is a man who came to America and beat all comers, only to be beaten by Gotch. But even one of those falls was a bit dirty, with the legendary Frank Gotch going for the handshake, and when Zabisco reached out to meet it, he shot under the uh, arm for the double and went for a quick pin. Oof. Stanislaus was a man in the conversation with Frank Gotch and Georges Hackenschmidt for who is the best wrestler in the world. But... Before World War I broke out, he went back to Europe. Uh, you know, he had matches in, in uh, Britain with people like the Great Gamma and Dodger Roller, and he got lost in the nightmare that was World War I in Europe. And now he's back. The old gunslinger has reemerged. The Bridgeport Times and Evening Farmer claimed that Stanislaus had been in Europe raising funds for displaced Polish civilians and for wounded soldiers. When he returned to Poland, he took up residence in Krakow, then soon moved on to St. Petersburg to wrestle at the Circus Nikitin, and then off to Moscow as the war crept onto Russian soil. Competition was limited, so he often wrestled Latvian Dmitry Martinov, including a tournament where they were given joint first place in 1915. After this, it's hard to get details on his life, like many during the First World War. He was allegedly interned as a foreign agent by the Bolshevists. He told many stories, most of which were obviously bullshit, like the tale he told of being arrested and forced to wrestle Alexander Aberg with the threat of immediate execution if he lost hovering over his head. We covered in detail in our George Lurich series, which is available to listen to. The guy, like many wrestlers, never met a tall tale that he did not like telling to the press. But he was also in that unique position where he was kind of maybe possibly a spy. So, like, it was classified. So he had to make up some crazy-ass bullshit. And so, like, that's pretty cool to give a pro wrestler, like, a grounds to, like, come up with, like, a bullshit story to cover a classified crazier story where he was probably hiding in a closet or because he was scared when the bombs were going off or something. Well, whatever the case, the once wealthy and successful Stanislaw Zabisco had lost everything in the war and was eager to come back to the United States and start earning off of the American wrestling scene yet again. On January 20th, 1920, the wrestling world showed the fuck up for Joe Stetcher versus Earl Caddick. As we've seen before, the risk of the biggest matches is the possibility of the biggest of disappointments, such as Gotch versus Hackenschmidt, the early Stetcher versus Lure matches, or the many similar things today in boxing and MMA. This, however, was all fireworks, and it's a good thing because people paid a pretty penny to watch it. The best seats were $22, and the 10,000, you heard me right, 10,000 ticket buyers created a $75,000 gate in 1920 money. The ticket was so hot that counterfeit tickets were sold that, according to the Cincinnati Commercial Tribune, were an exact duplicate of the real pasteboard, but the back of it was blue instead of yellow. A man was arrested for selling the fake tickets and prosecuted. It was a babyface versus babyface battle of technical wrestlers in a one-fall match, with Stetcher winning the match and title after two hours and five minutes. It was high-paced, technical, and the crowd loved it. The wrestlers earned 30k for the motion picture rights, and there are surviving reels of the match which you can watch on YouTube today. That is maybe the genesis of the big show 
almost pay-per-view-esque wrestling model right there because they have built to this crescendo, to this big blow-off final showdown, and they just drew a $70,000 house literally 100 years ago. That's pretty remarkable. Joe Stetcher was now the first undisputed champion since Frank Gotch retired. He was reportedly paid 25 k plus his half of the movie rights. Because keep in mind, these are the days where they would shoot, you know, the... You know, shoot the matches, both boxing and wrestling, and then they would travel around to theaters like a movie, and people would go to the theater and pay X amount to watch them. So that was becoming a big part of the box office as well. It was no longer just the gate, it was the gate plus the motion picture rights. So we are kind of moving into the direction where now everything is a cut of this, a portion of that, a percentage of this. The deals are getting bigger and bigger and more complex. The proto pay per view. Also in January, Jack Hurley signed Jim Londos and took him off to New York, effectively stealing him away from promoter Mike McKinney in Canton, Ohio, who had spent a lot of time making Londos his top draw. At the 71st Regiment Armory in Manhattan, Londos defeated William Demetrial on January 5th in a big match McKinnon had already been planning for months that now happened under Curley's promotional umbrella. It was a brutal match that lasted one hour and 49 minutes and was for the completely imaginary Greek wrestling championship. And here's another thing we're going to see in wrestling nonstop after this, where now we have the big promoters, the territorial promoters, and somebody's going to build up a big star only to have the guy uh, in the bigger city with the bigger wallet steal them out from under him and turn them into the star that the smaller promoter never could. Uh, I don't know if that ever happened with a guy named uh, Hulk Hogan out of you know, AWA moved to the WWF. Uh, you might have heard about it. Some guy named Vince McMahon Jr. He might have mattered later on down the road. Yeah, it just shows that nothing is new in the business, darling. And Ed Lewis, being the good businessman he was, continued to build up Londos on February 4th, 1920. After Londos had his big win, Billy Sandow took to the press and claimed that Ed Lewis could throw a smaller Greek star three times in two hours. I'm going to redo that paragraph. Ed Lewis, knowing what's best for business, continued to help build up Londos on January 4th, 1920. After Londos had his big win for the Greek championship, Billy Sandow took to the press and claimed that Ed Lewis could throw the smaller Greek star three times in two hours. Londos, outweighed by almost 50 pounds, out-wrestled Lewis and wasn't pinned even once. Again, Lewis knew how to do business. Lewis didn't look bad because he didn't technically lose or get pinned or anything, but Londos looked strong because he didn't lose. He didn't take a single pin in the time limit against a bigger opponent. And the business was done, because going back to what they did earlier, the, the modern term for when you are just using all that hoopla and hullabaloo to, you know, contested finishes and runs all that, it's called hot shotting. And what they've done is they've slowed it back down, they've established decisive finishes so now what was old is new again now they can reestablish the the gimmick the you know the stipulation of the match the multi-fall match and now it has redeveloped some merit to it classic sandow man now the more i learn about this guy the more i admire him i mean the guy pretty much invented pro wrestling as we know it and we all owe him a debt of gratitude 
During February, John Pesek was working in Chicago. While in the Windy City, he was invited for a workout at the Hebrew Institute, which was a hotbed of hungry young grapplers looking to make a name for themselves. I always picture it as like the Eye of the Tiger boxing gym from... Uh, from Rocky Three, where it's just all the youngsters just looking at the the big star as just a meal that is going to make their name. Yeah, that's a that's a bold move for an established name to go into a a pit of hungry lions like that because there are guys that want what you have, and it's really easy to insulate yourself with yes men. Keeping yourself in a hungry environment is probably really good for business. And the press showed up along with a few hundred people who heard the rumors that there might be fireworks that night. Pesic ate up anyone who shouted out a challenge to him. Sports writer Ed White wrote, Pesic is something entirely new, not only original but thrilling. He throws big guys around like they were children, and his work with his legs is a revelation. He works better with his legs than most wrestlers do with their arms. Pesic was clearly making an impact because he was now big enough for Joe Carroll Marsh to call out. In the February 6th Beatrice Daily Sun, Plastina is on the trail of one John Pesic, in which Pesic joins Lewis, Stetcher, and Caddick as the wrestlers worth calling out by name, with a promise to wager $1,000 that Plastina would beat him. So Marsh is again calling everybody out on behalf of Plastina, because Plastina is on the outside of the trust looking in, and this is the only way he knows to get what he wants. It's a dirty business, man, but you're seeing all of these things play out that are kind of developed almost to the point of being tropes now in pro wrestling. This is how these organically came out as for cause and effect like dominoes. It's very fascinating, man. The press also began to speculate who was worthy of facing Stetcher for the title, if anyone actually was. From the February 4th Bridgeport Times and Evening Farmer article, Stetcher ought to retain title long. His only dangerous rival is Earl Caddick, whom he has just defeated. Other wrestlers not in Stetcher's class, but may accept matches with them. So this is a guy who is so dominant now that nobody is really considered in his league, but he has to take matches just to be a defending champion. So he's almost gotten to, as far as the press is concerned, gotch level. So sounds like the perfect storm to establish a new gunslinger and bring in somebody to take that weight off of his hands and, and create a, a, you know, a new rivalry, man. It's almost like you've done pro wrestling before. You don't say. Smell a sand out from here. On February 15th, Stanislaw Zabisco arrives in New York via the Danish steamer Oscar II. According to the following day's New York Tribune, he was already claiming to be ready to face Stetcher after a few weeks of training. Confidence. Promo. That's pro wrestling. Dude, he came in like Lex Luger on the USS Express out of the helicopter when he body slammed Yoko <laughs> Meanwhile, Ed Lewis rebounded with another win over Vladik Zabisco on February 16th in Kansas City. Meanwhile, Londos had his title shot lined up against Joe Stetcher. This went down at the 71st Regiment Armory Building on February 20th. It was described as an absolute war, with Stetcher's post-war muscle gain being all that stood between Londos and the title. Stetcher ultimately beat the Greek contender with a wrist lock after 2 hours and 13 minutes. The arena was completely sold out, so the police locked the door to keep out the thousands more that showed up and tried to get in. Fire code, people. Fire code. Dude, that's awesome. The police, like, broke the law. 
because well, they were that worried about the the crowd. That's 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 when you know your show's hot, darling. And if you want to see a cool building, uh, look up the 71st Regiment Armory Building in New York. It looked like a goddamn castle, but it's kind of like the uh, the Foreign Legion or the uh, you know VFWs where wrestling is today. Only multiply that by a thousand. It was an absolutely fantastic building. This was apparently a fantastic match, and Ed Lewis did everything he could for months to build up Londos into being a title contender. So his match against Stetcher meant something. Yeah, and he's playing his role to perfection. The established name, putting over the new talent, establishing new contenders for the top of the food chain. And that's the business as we know it today, darling. And there was a rematch because Stetcher had yet another big defense of his title against Londos on February 20th. According to the next day's Racine Journal News, in New York City, the match went an hour and 12 minutes with Londos being rough at every turn until... Stetcher put the Greek on the mat with an arm lock. He followed with a head and hip lock, which brought Lados' shoulders to the mat and victory to the champion. The same paper reported that John Pesek won the Bohemian Wrestling Championship by defeating Stanley Prenta. No idea what that actually was, if it even existed, sadly. So, they're doing hot programs. You know, you, again, you build up a guy, you do a big match, it does big business, you give him a second shot, everybody comes back hoping to see maybe a different outcome or another great match. You can get those double ups now. You can make a main event mean something so much that you can do the same match, same town, next week, and still draw hot. Yeah, it's, it's starting to develop into the formula of, like, the local guy was this close, and that next level, that next rematch, that next stipulation is going to be the difference. And you keep the audience emotionally invested. That's brilliant. So with the overcapacity draw of the title matches between Stetcher and Londos, Jack Curley booked Londos versus Ed Lewis at Madison Square Garden on March 2nd and sold it the fuck out. It was once again booked as a size versus skill, strength versus technique, and over the course of two hours, Lewis would attack with his headlock and Londos would outposition Lewis to escape until he got fancy one too many times and was pinned at the two hour and two minute mark. Lewis was visibly exhausted, while Londos looked ready to go two more hours. Brilliant booking to keep everyone looking strong. Lewis got the win, and the undersized Londos won over the crowd with his undersized heroism. So the bigger, stronger, meaner heel, he gets the win, but he looked so tired wrestling the better, smaller wrestler that nobody really walked away diminished. Yeah, I feel like Curly's sort of the Darth Vader, and then Sandow is like Darth Sidious just pulling strings from the shadows, and just this is... The, the, the orchestration and the, the way that they are setting everything up and playing it out. Lewis, frankly, Lewis has been jobbing, making names, and now he comes back and reminds everybody who he is and how dangerous he is. And the heel is always, you know, he's still showing vulnerability, and the babyface has that opportunity to get it back in the people's eyes later. It's, it's brilliant on every level of booking. Up next for Ed Lewis was a number one contender match against Earl Caddick, the former champ, the man of a thousand holds, and Caddick was the huge favorite. He was practically unbeaten over the years, except for his title loss to Stetcher. He was a war hero, if you spin the story right, and an amazing technical wrestler. He was pure white meat babyface material. And in front of a sold-out crowd in Madison Square Garden, reportedly at 11,000 fans, the crowd cheered everything Caddick did on March 15, 1920. Caddick, 
Much like in his first match with Lewis, wrestled circles around his much larger opponent until he tired himself out and was caught in the dreaded headlock, thrown, and pinned at the 1 hour 35 minute mark. It was the same physical story Lewis had been telling with Stetcher and Londos, but now he came out on top of it. Matches like this are also what led to the rumor of Caddick having no cardio due to World War I health-related problems, the gassing, the getting sick. But when you're telling that story, clearly that becomes a problem because if you're working matches, an undersized technical wrestler who's working, putting over bigger, stronger wrestlers like Zabisco and Lewis, the sporting press is, of course, going to turn anything into drama. So I think that was the case more than anything. The audacity to, like, question a man who just fought for two hours cardio. You know what I'm saying? Let's see you do it, tubby press guy. I mean, the fact is, though, it was a brilliant finish because here you have the man of a thousand holds versus the man of one hold, the strangler. And just when everybody was behind the baby face, they, they took him on that ride, man. It's good shit. And in the ring after the match, a doctor examined Caddick and claimed his collarbone had been broken in the match, blaming the dreaded headlock. I doubt this was legitimate and was cooked up to keep Earl Caddick looking strong and sympathetic, but if it was real, that is a terrible injury uh, for MMA kids of our generation. Who doesn't remember Kazushi Sakuraba versus Vanderlei Silva 2, where the match was stopped between rounds when Sakuraba stood up and his shoulder was sagging down with his collarbone popping up. It is a brutal injury, but I feel this was not a real thing, not a real story. It was just cooked up to make the headlock look even more dangerous than it possibly was and at the same time making Caddick look more sympathetic to the crowd because he lost off of an injury against a potentially borderline dirty move. Yes, a band hold ended up injuring him. Although, I don't know if they know, you know what kind of a doctor would diagnose a, you know, a chokehold that broke your collarbone. I guess if it was in, during the takeover when they landed, and if that's the case, then it's a legitimately unfortunate injury and just a happy circumstance. But what I've discerned from Sandow is there is no happy circumstance. It's all a masterstroke, darling. Oh yeah, the layers and layers of storytelling that we're beginning to see are brilliant. Where you're not just, somebody wins, somebody loses. You have to keep everybody strong so everybody's a box office draw in the major cities. Everybody can turn into a title contender within a matter of months. So you have to keep the losers looking strong even as losers because otherwise they're no longer draws and beating them means nothing. It's brilliant. It's long-term business thinking. Yeah, and, the, you know, they're making more money than ever before. I've never heard numbers like this from any of the episodes we've ever gone over. This is tremendous. In the meantime, Stanislaw Zabisco was racking up wins for himself. Though he was clearly a shadow of his former self, the Racine Journal News described, Stanislaw has aged noticeably during his six-year absence from these parts and has put on a lot of weight that does him no good. He has seen his best days, but is so bulky and ponderous that he will give any of them a tussle yet. When he was here before, he would have thrown a man like Lindo as fast as he pleased. Stanislaus really did look decades older than his actual age. At just 40 years old, you would have easily mistaken him for being in his mid-50s. But hey, you know what? Being trapped in Europe during World War I, probably not the best thing for your overall health. Yeah, bitch, he was in war. Like, what do you want from the man? I mean, he's, he's trying to do the Randy Couture thing in his mid-40s, you know, military hero, and 
you guys are giving him shit about having, you know, enjoying a, uh, you know, a taco and a donut, and let the man live. Yeah, it's it's something where we're not talking like he was traveling. I mean, this is a hard time to be a traveling performer to begin with, let alone, you know, as you might remember from the George Lurich episodes, you know, during World War One, these guys were like refugees on the run eating the worst food, sleeping on rocks. This is this will take years off your goddamn life, years off of your health, years off of your career. So for him to come back and even looking terrible compared to what he was, he was still a hell of an athlete and he had the determination to make it work. Yeah, he's a he's a bad motherfucker and he better not find out which one of you pencil necks is is bad naming him in the press. So with a clear-cut number one contender and a strong defending champion, the Joe Stetcher-Ed Lewis match took place at the 71st Armory Building on April 16, 1920. There was very little to fear of the multi-hour-long snooze fest that the two men had in the years past. They had now worked together for years. Betting was no longer the main financial motivator, and both men answered to Jack Curley. Why wasn't this match at the Garden, you may be asking. I know I certainly was, or I'm going to pretend to for the sake of drama. According to Lewis biographer Steve Yohei, Curley was willing to give up 3,000 additional seats because the rent was cheaper, had a better location in the city, and Curley wouldn't have to make any deals with his hated rival Tex Rickard, who managed the Garden and had pushed Curley out of boxing. There it is. That's the real reason anyone in promotions and, and in the fight game and the wrestling game does anything. Out of spite for your enemy. Oh, spite is a powerful motivator, and motivated he was. And also, according to Steve Yohei, Lewis was seemingly liked and respected by the press and fans, but his headlock was another matter. It was almost seen as possibly too brutal and too dangerous for wrestling. Earl Caddick's broken collarbone was seen as evidence to that point. So the man was liked, the man was respected, but the, the kind of the consensus was his one big finisher was too dangerous and maybe that needed to be pushed out of the business. Yeah, and that's that's beautiful booking in and of itself. That's pro wrestling, man. That's a, that's they've got you know he's got the hold that can't you know it's the dirty hold that can put any good man away and and win a match that he shouldn't. That's you know that's a great uh, plot device for telling the story of being the heel. The title face-off was the action-packed title match that everyone had hoped for, with non-stop action, constant submission attempts with reversals and new attempts at different holds. They both fell through the ropes, so lost in their hatred for one another. Lewis applying the headlock, trying to wear Stetcher down. With a big finish on the fifth attempt at the headlock as Stetcher picked up Lewis while caught in this headlock and slamming his bigger opponent to the mat, then using an armlock to turn the strangler for the pin. The crowd stormed the ring to celebrate with Stetcher after his phenomenal defense of his title. Wow. What a finish. That is, you know, that's like straight out of Hollywood, man. That is brilliant. The people hit the ring. That's how, that tells you how good it was and how with it they were, man. Yeah, and I picture it being very cinematic where, where, totally. where uh, Strangler had him in the headlock and Stetcher hooked him and picked him up for a big body, you know, backed body drop. I picture it in slow motion with shots of the crowd cheering. Totally. So this is pure Hollywood. It is manufactured like Hollywood, but it gets an emotional response just like the best movies out of Hollywood. And Meltzer only gave it two and three quarter stars. <laughs>
So this is how you book a program. Keep the heel built to monster levels. Make babyface champ a hero. Curly didn't like long title reigns, however, because he needed all top guys looking strong without eating up the rest of them. So everyone thought it was Strangler's Day, but they were wrong and couldn't be happier about it. Yeah, that's it. You know, he's he's playing the big picture, man. You gotta you gotta shuffle your pieces, and you can't have you don't want to. He doesn't want to end up in another gotch situation. So everything they're doing is building. Building a wheel where a single spoke can't crumble the whole structure. Exactly, because in the past you saw legitimate shooters like Gotch or Muldoon hold the title for a decade, and it made it harder to sell tickets. And later on down the road, you would have champions hold the titles for long periods of time for much different reasons, and you'll hear about that reason in a few episodes. But for now, business has to be, you know, has to be hot. We have to have different people on top because you couldn't kill the lowest guy on the totem pole without removing an important piece of the Jenga tower. Yeah, you can't play rock, paper, scissors if one of the, you know, elements can doesn't lose. Like, you have to keep the story going, Daddy, and he's doing it. They're doing it, man. On May 20th, 1920, the James J. Walker Bill was signed into law by New York Governor Al Smith, which fully legalized boxing in the state and set up a commission to control boxing and wrestling, and this still exists today. It made sure that anyone running a combat sport in New York was licensed and responsible to the state of New York. This would have big implications for everything to this day. Paddock and Lewis had a rematch in Des Moines on June 8th. Both sides talked plenty of trash to the press, with Sandow claiming that Caddick was afraid of Lewis's headlock, and Gene Malady claiming that Caddick had Lewis pinned in their previous match, but the referee was distracted by Sandow, and that the headlock was a strangle and should be banned. Awesome. You've got, you know, they're working it on both sides. This is a classic build. This is great, man. I'm just sitting back as a fan and just enjoying it. And yeah, because we're seeing things being booked through the press now. It's no longer just the regional papers to the regional people. The press is now kind of coast to coast. So you're able to reference things that happen in New York when you're selling tickets in Des Moines. 6,500 fans filled the Des Moines Coliseum. It was two out of three falls, with Caddick taking the first fall in 43 minutes by reversing the dreaded headlock into a head scissor. Lewis scored the second with a headlock in 27 minutes, and the deciding fall went to Caddick with a toehold that turned Lewis onto his back, gotch style, for a pin at the seven-minute mark. It was a story of lighter wrestler wearing down a bigger heel and a big submission into a pin moment. Caddick is now looking strong once again. Again, curly booking. Everybody has to be up. Everybody has to be down to make title matches mean anything. Yeah, and you notice they're having different sort of flavors in different parts of the country. The Iowa-Nebraska matches are having a little bit more of a baby face and sort of open-ended kind of thing where the, the New York crowd is into the heels. And that loss gave Lewis a chance to have a little bit of time off because the next month, Lewis and Ada Scott welcomed their daughter into the world. They decided to combine their first names and name her, I kid you not, Bob Ada. Possibly the worst fucking name I've ever heard in my life. What in the name of Beyonce, Kim Kardashian, Kanye, Jay-Z are we talking about here? This is terrible. Yikes and yikes on top of that. 
And if you thought that was bad, the same month saw Joe Stetcher injure his arm while training with the minor league baseball team he played for, and he was not going to be able to compete in wrestling for some time. In July, John Pesek made his West Coast debut, going to a draw with Ad Santel at the two-hour mark on July 27th at the Dreamland Auditorium, and then beating Jim Londos on August 3rd. Before the Santel match, he broke out his favorite publicity stunt and allowed a car to roll over his abs. Passers-by were horrified because they assumed they witnessed a horrible accident with a car running somebody over, and were amazed to see him jump to his feet and perform a few handsprings. This made the front page of the San Francisco paper. <laughs> and this was also important because now we're seeing Pesic beat guys like Londos. So he's now putting himself, or more or less being put by the big bookers, into star top contention. Yeah, they're, they're continuing the cycle. They're building the next level. They're building the next round of stars and keep making sure everything stays fresh. It's really, really good planning. And this is one of the favorite things I found recently. On October 15th, Kansas City saw a rematch between Vladik Zabisco and John Pesek that ended with fists being thrown. <laughs> Fuck, yeah. It was a rough match from, from the start with lots of punches and headbutts. Zabisco accusing Pesek of being oiled up, but the ref checking him and denied the claim. Within 15 minutes, Pesek got fed up and cracked Zabisco in the face with a closed fist punch. Jack Curley, who was in Zabisco's corner, leapt into the ring and raised hell. The match was awarded to Zabisco via disqualification. That is awesome. Now, do you think that was organic, or do you think that was the plan? I can't imagine that being being anything other than a pure showbiz bit of business because I am picturing like a Jimmy Hart style running totally, that's and, a good, and, yeah. like waving his arms or you, you know this one not stand yeah totally yeah I just I picture that as pure modern pro wrestling with a manager running in and raising hell and the the baby face holding his you know just just pure showbiz schmoz yeah. but I love it I love the bullshit angle of pro wrestling at this time that's awesome October 27th Ed Lewis is back, defeating Vladik Zabisco in Montreal, and then again on November 23rd at the 71st Armory of Via Headlock after one hour and 25 minutes in front of 10,000 fans. It was clearly a great series, even if Vladik was piling up the losses and was being more or less a stepping stone for others on their way up the ladder at this point. It was the last match between the two men for over a decade. Around this time, John Pesek and his longtime manager, Martin Slattery, parted ways. Slattery claimed that he couldn't get Pesek away from the farm enough to get him a run with the top bookings, while Pesek claimed that Slattery didn't have the connections to get him the top spots in paydays. Larney Lichtenstein was quick to swoop in and take full control of the Nebraska Tiger Man's career. Lichtenstein, Tiger Man. What a, what a, you know, this is, should be a, I don't know, an album or like a... B-side project by Hall & Oates, that's tremendous. Ed Lewis was now getting his rematch against Joe Stetcher, set for December 13th, 1920. Both men were in New York City for, quote, training the weeks before. The armory was filled with just under 9,000 fans. It was so crowded that the fire department stopped by and ordered anyone else be turned away, even if they had a ticket at hand. With Sandow in Lewis's corner and Tony Stetcher cornering his champion brother, the match was underway. According to the December 14th New York Herald Tribune, Lewis was bulked up to 228 pounds over Stetcher's 208. They stated that 
Seldom has a wrestling match been crowded with so many sensational incidents as the one between these premier catch-as-catch-can experts. Said the throng that jammed the armory to its capacity were kept cheering and shouting from start to finish, and if that's not an old-timey compliment, I don't know what is. Yeah, man, and you know it's a you know it's a big deal when Sandow's in the corner. You know it's a big deal when he's got his, the babyface has his brother in the corner, and it's you know it's classic booking by modern standards. But this is the showdown, man, and the people are with it. Yeah, reportedly Ed Lewis even showed up wearing a purple robe, much like Gotch used to wear, Ooh. which just kind of made me think of uh, Rocky showing up wearing Apollo Creed's trunks. Totally. You know, so there, this was definitely given the weight that it deserved. And before the match, Stanislaw Zabisco entered the ring to announce a challenge to whoever wins. And according to the New York Tribune, Stanislaw Zabisco came in to challenge Stetcher. The pole shook hands. Then he made a playful grab for the Nebraskan. Stetcher resented the playfulness, and Zabisco left the ring in a huff, muttering ponderous Polish threats. It's called booking, ladies and gentlemen. They're setting up the next chapter after this blow-off. It's, it's good shit, man. Sandow again. Once the rules were established, the ref was introduced, the bell rang to start the match at 9.20 p.m. According to the Quincy Daily Herald, it took one hour, 41 minutes, and 56 seconds before Lewis took Stetcher down with a headlock takeover. Quote, Stetcher was worn down to a weak condition by eight successive headlocks. He squirmed out of the first of these in 36 seconds, but as he arose, Lewis got another on a flying hold which he maintained for 40 seconds. Stetcher squirmed out and obtained a body scissor, his favorite hold, but by the sheer strength, Lewis broke away and clamped on another headlock which lasted 40 seconds. The next three were of short duration, but Stetcher staggered to the ropes after freeing himself, and Lewis got the final finishing headlock and, as he closed his left arm over Stetcher's head, turned him with a hip lock, threw him heavy, and pinned his shoulders to the mat almost immediately. Stetcher had the better of the first hour struggle and was the aggressor for most of the contest, winding his legs around Lewis for the scissor hold frequently. On three occasions, he made Lewis wince from pain by toe holds. Lewis limped after one of these and both appeared tired from their exertion. According to the New York Tribune, it was so smoky inside that the audience had a hard time telling if the match was even over after the pin. So this really was wow. the Clash of the Titans. This totally. was the big match. This was the long-built rematch and showdown. It delivered on every level. And after years of even when he was losing, having Sandow claim that Ed Lewis was the real champ, the best in the world, no matter what. But the time had come. Ed Lewis was finally the champion as we close out the year 1920. And, and it, the recap in the paper perfectly illustrates how over the, the headlock was. The fact that they were timing the amount of duration of time that he was in the headlock each individual time. They've got the move over. And again, Strangler don't lose in New York, Daddy. It was a, a beautiful, beautiful piece of business right there. Absolutely, because, again, you have your signature moves. You have your well-defined characters. You have the press pushing for certain narratives. This is pro wrestling. Even if it was a real sport, it's pro wrestling. It's the same way you build up a boxing match. It's the same way you even build up a Super Bowl. This was a marquee matchup in front of a meaningful crowd for a meaningful match, and it delivered across the board, and at long last, Ed Lewis was holding the belt 
the only belt that mattered, the only championship that mattered. He beat Joe Stetcher. He was the top of the food chain. He was at the top of the world. And that seems like a very good place to call it quits for today. I know it feels like these stories just are ramping up at the one hour mark, but we can't talk all day. We're already crazy enough. We would just go insane after a certain point. So we're gonna continue this story on the doorstep of 1921 and all the insanity that the next year would bring. And holy crap, I showed Chongo some notes earlier. The next episode is gonna get real wild. Dude, this is about to be some shit because now that they've slowed it down, they've established the the sports entertainment business model and they've conditioned the fans now they are about to pour some gasoline on the fire and i am very excited so we will find out what happens when ed lewis is the reigning and defending champion we find out what happens when the the old sportsman stanislaw zabisco builds his way up as a contender what happens to former champ joe stetcher what happens when the nebraska tiger man finally starts getting his teeth into the top men of the business well, that's going to be discussed next time. But in the meantime, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, check out our Instagram. I'm, I'm finding more and more crazy old headlines to post so you'll see some crazy old-timey newspaper business. But that's what you need to do in your spare time. That's your homework, kids. But for now, good night, good day, good afternoon, good morning for the weirdos who jog and listen to this. I don't know how to tell you what to do with your lives. For Chongo Bronson, I'm Nick Gossert. Talk to you next time. Peace out, nerds. No martini for me. I'm in training.